Greetings and salutations to you on your Wednesday afternoon. Tanner Hoops in studio with you. John Michael Hofling from ABC10 joins me. Woke up to a little snow today. I was not totally expecting. I thought we were going to get more of that over the weekend. Instead, we get it now. I like it. Do you? I've been I've been begging for some snow again because I have an idea for a story with a skier. Okay. But you can't do a story with a skier without snow. Uh, makes sense. Yeah, 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 right? I mean, you're a California guy. I wouldn't have thought that you'd like snow. No, no, no. So the, the thing with California... Wow. The thing with Californians is we all absolutely love snow and mm. can't believe when we see it. Mm-hmm. But every time one of us has to live in it for multiple weeks, that's when we hate it. Yeah, yeah. You came up here toward the end of it. You didn't go through the long, grueling winter like we all did. Mm. I can finally start to say that now. I've been through my first winter, and I don't feel like I'm totally out of the woods yet. I may not be done with my first winter. I keep hearing that there's always like a second snowstorm in April. That's what I'm hearing. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm waiting for. It wasn't too bad today, just a little bit of dusting, but... It was really blowing. I woke up during the middle of the night, looked out the window. It was kind of cool to see. But, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it, I can live with this. It'll, it'll be gone in a few days. It's nice seeing running water, though, seeing the waves out there in the lake. I tell you what, uh, we got plenty to break down over the next hour in the world of sports, including an interview with Rob Domofsky. He writes for the Packers for ESPN.com. He'll be joining me in about 15 minutes, breaking down an article that he wrote about Mike McCarthy, the Lenny Dykstra, Ron Darling situation, college hoops coaches on the move. Russell Wilson wants to be the highest paid quarterback in football, but we start with the AAF and why the AAF is not officially dead but on life support. The AAF suspended all football operations yesterday per the largest stakeholder, Tom Dundon, who also owns the Carolina Hurricanes. He became the largest shareholder after the first week of the season when the AAF looked like they weren't going to make it to a second weekend. The co-creators of this league are Bill Polian and Charlie Ebersole, and they wanted to keep the league going. They knew it was struggling, but they thought they could have success in the future with it. Tom Dundon decides to pull the plug. Even though he didn't create the league, he is its biggest financial backer, and without him, the league can't survive. So they have suspended all football operations. Players are returning home. It's really tough to see, especially for those guys. This was their last chance for a lot of them. You know, What does Johnny Manziel do now? Where does he go play? I have a theory about it, though. I think that there is some collusion behind what happened because you think about what happened here. Tom Dundon is at stake to lose $70 million by pulling the plug right now. I mean, the timing of this seems like there's something more here that people aren't getting, that they aren't hitting on. To me, something's going on behind the scenes. I have a theory about what that might be, and I believe that there is a connection between Dundon and his good friend Vince McMahon, who just so happens to be starting his own league coming up next year. Okay, They're good friends. I wonder if Vince McMahon made him this deal. You know, you have 52 guys on a team, eight teams in your league. That's like 400 players of the next tier that aren't good enough to be in the NFL, but still pretty good. So what does that leave me with, with my league? I wonder if there is an opportunity to try and merge some of the operations they had with the AAF with the XFL, because otherwise Tom Dunn is just out $70 million. There has been one person who works on the broadcast production side of the AAF that has confirmed this to ESPN. He believes that this is what happened. And I gotta say, I don't totally disagree with it. I feel like there's a little bit of collusion going on between Vince McMahon and the XFL and Tom Dundon and the AAF 
that they are essentially forming one super league, except they kind of throw everyone else under the bus, everybody involved in the AEF who is not Tom Dundon. I don't know. What do you think? I will say, when it came out that the AAF and the XFL were going to start virtually the same time, I thought, this is dumb. Mm-hmm. Well, why wouldn't you just start with a one league? Mm-hmm. So I agree that there needs to just be one league that all the second-tier players can go to. And when you say it like that, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if Dunn and McMahon are as close as you say. But still, $70 million is $70 million. Right. I mean, that's a lot to lose just by yeah. pulling the plug with... What, no back out plan? I mean, does Dundon think, you know, this is just the end of it? I'm just going to lose $70 million for a thing I bought into a month and a half ago? I don't think he'd make that kind of investment if there wasn't a backup plan for him waiting in the wings. I don't know if that's Vince McMahon's backup plan, but i got to believe there's something on the table for him. There's got to be, right? Has to be. I mean, but here's the thing. Like, any time any sort of collusion gets involved with destroying people's careers... Because we've just taken the AAF and destroyed those people's careers. Yeah, they can move to the XFL, but it's unlikely, right? Mm-hmm. For for most of them, at least. That could be way that could be way more costly than just the seventy million he invested. I feel like mm-hmm. it could be. It could be, right? But he's not going in alone this time. He's got backing like Vince McMahon. They also have a mutual friend in Jerry Jones. I I don't know if he has a part I, I in this, but Jerry, I wonder. I don't think Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones is already know. making so much. Right. He, he's got to focus on his boys. Right. He doesn't have to worry about anything else. It's a possibility, but an unlikely one. I, I, yeah. I, I think that if there were collusion, they would stand to lose way, way more than what they've already put into it. Well, Vince and, McMahon was going to do this anyway, and Tom Dundon just tried it, and now he's out $70 million. So this time he doesn't have to take on the risk alone like he did with the AAF, and at least... If the XFL doesn't land on its feet, they don't make it, then it's not him that's putting all his eggs in one basket this time. Now you've got a collective group that would all stand to lose something. It's always better when you have a group, right? Right. I mean, it's not like one guy is going to take the fall for all this financially if it doesn't work out. It's not going to work out. It, it, no, it won't. The XFL, <laughs> we all know the XFL is doomed to fail. Uh, so if and when it does not work out for the XFL, it's not one guy taking the fall financially or at least taking 90% of the fall financially like it was in the AAF. I think that's where the appeal... The thing is, if you're Tom Dunn, you're al- you've already lost so much with the AAF. Why would you... So you put all your eggs into one basket anymore... Why would you take any remaining eggs you have left and put it into something else that, if you look at any sort of analysis of it, you know it's not going to succeed mm-hmm. past the first year, maybe? That would make sense. You're right. Like, if the AEF, with everything that they had with some high-profile coaches, a few high-profile players, and they had a great TV deal, about as good mm-hmm. as you could ask for for something like that, if that all can't work out, why would the XFL... The only reason I can think is... He must really want to be a football boss. You know? will, he obviously wants to. That's why he got involved in the AAF, and maybe he just has that desire to be a football guy. Maybe. I will say, the XFL has a little bit more of an uh, appeal to mm-hmm. a football audience because, let's face it, everybody who watches the AAF is just going to be like, oh, well, this is cool, but I'm not going to watch it because there's a better... There's better programming in the NFL. It's the same mm-hmm. reason why, I know this is an unpopular opinion, but I'm not as into college football as the NFL. It's mm-hmm. because 
the NFL is just a better version. We see better players playing in, rather than college football. So it's the same thing with the AAF and the NFL. Why would you think that the XFL is going to work? Now, well, the only reason is because it's got these insane rule sets, this mm-hmm. insane showmanship, which is what people are trying to th- say is, hey, we might not be as good as the NFL, but we've got flair. Right. something the NFL has been lacking. So it, I think it has a better chance than the AAF, but still, people like to see good football more than anything. The product that they put out, the competitiveness, is going to trump all. I mean, will it be fun to see some of the extreme hits and the gimmicks, sideshow attractions that mm-hmm. Vince McMahon puts? Absolutely it will be. But, I mean, if you want to see something like that, there are plenty of bad football comedy movies you could see something <laughs> like that. I mean, you've you got plenty of movies so like that. so many times. Though. Right, right. And that's the thing is, at the end of the day, it's going to matter what kind of product you put out on the field, what kind of talent is going to be out there. They're going to have to come up with a gimmick of some sort. And the AAF tried to differentiate themselves from the NFL by a few different rule changes, like uh, forcing teams to go for a two-point conversion, things like that. The XFL is going to have to come up with a few more ways to step that up. Not just gimmicks like promotions, but gameplay. They're going to have to figure out, like the onside kick rule, that you saw that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I think that's something the XFL should try. Because whether it's a good thing or not, They've got to differentiate themselves from the NFL. Well, I think that's the whole thing with the XFL. They are, like, they're the extreme football league for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. So, when it comes to the... They need to just have good football with showmanship, right? Mm -hmm. And make it fun. Uh, Let people share clips, which is something the NFL doesn't do, and it's always bugged me. Just let people share your product, Mm -hmm. and it'll, it'll, it'll work out way better than the AAF. That's the biggest thing, right? Just let people expand it on social media. I mean, there are ways that the AEF could have done things differently, that maybe they would have had a chance. And I wonder if Tom Dundon sees what he could have done, and maybe with a fresh start he thinks he could do better with the XFL, if indeed he is going to be an executive with the XFL, like I'm starting to think might have a little bit of momentum. I don't know. I think we're going to find out a lot more about this in the coming months. I will be really interested to see if Tom Dundon is, in fact, a partner with Vince McMahon in the XFL when it's all said and done. be good to see. I, I'm, I'm cheering for him. I want, the, I want the XFL to succeed. I do, too. I just don't think it will. It, it won't. No. <laughs> but just the idea of having multiple football leagues. Like, the NFL is just cornerstones that brands, mm-hmm. cornerstone those television markets for so long now, highest rated show on TV. I want some competition for it, and if it's something that can maybe not have as good a football but can be more entertaining, then sure, I'd love to see that. Well, and what the AF did so well, they took the most unpopular things about the NFL and they separated themselves from that. Like, they were transparent about replay. They showed you how the process worked. People like that. You know, they like seeing the transparency and what have you. They take what the NFL does wrong, does what's unpopular in people's eyes, and they go the opposite way with it. That's something that the XFL is going to have to do as well. They got a lot of insight uh, from trying this once that they may try to. Uh, I mean, somebody from the AAF has insight on what they could have done better. To me, for nobody from the AEF to want to partner with the XFL, it would be stupid. I mean, if Vince McMahon didn't bring somebody who did work with the AEF and try to bring them on ship with him, that's a lot of knowledge on how things didn't work out. You can learn from a second time around because it'll be a first for McMahon. Well, technically a second, but it's a lot different of a world than when he did it the first time. Do you think there was any chance the AEF was going to succeed? I did. 
I thought there would be a chance. They'd have to do a lot of things right, but I didn't see them folding before the end of the first season. I thought maybe they'll even try a second year. John Michael Hoefling in the studio with us. We owe you our first time out when we come back. Rob Domofsky, Packers beat writer for ESPN.com, will join me. He talks about an article profiling Mike McCarthy. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you, joined by Rob Domofsky. He covers the Packers for ESPN.com. Rob just profiled Mike McCarthy, what he's been up to since his firing in December. Rob, tell me about your meeting with Coach and what went into it, what you took away from it. Well, you know, it was uh, he obviously had been quiet for you know a long time. Tanner had been fired in, in December. and You know, I think he was finally ready to, to sort of tell his side of the story and um, you know, it, it was a Q and A uh, that took place a couple days ago, and I think he, you know he was reflective. He was honest about how it hurt him. You know, the way things were handled at the end. He didn't necessarily disagree with it. I mean, he said in the piece, "Hey, look, if if you know, I, if we didn't make the playoffs or you know, we didn't have a good season, you know, I knew that you know it was possible that uh, you know that that change could come." And uh, but he did not, you know, certainly did not see it coming. Uh, on the night of December second, as he walked off the field after they lost to, to Arizona, and I think, I think that was his point. He he had always stressed about how when he released players, you know, he he tried to do it with uh, with respect and dignity, and I, I I think I don't think he felt like he got that in return. Well, Rob, midseason coaching changes are rarity for the Packers. They haven't done it in over 60 years prior to McCarthy. He may not have liked how it was handled. He said that he expected to be fired at some point, but he didn't think it would happen midseason. He was surprised by that. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's debatable. Um, it, it just, it's, um, you know, if, if from an organization standpoint, if you know you're going to make a change, um, you know, are you better off served just to do it right then and there and, and make a clean break? But from his perspective, you know, certainly every competitor, every coach, you know, sort of wants to see things through and, and finish it out. So I can see it from both sides. Well, Rob, what's Coach been up to now, and has he revealed any plans for the future? Yeah, it's funny because I asked him, I said, uh, you know, how are you handling your year off? And, and he, he chuckled at, you know, the off, because he, he actually is, um, we did the interview in, in, in his office in his home in Green Bay, and, and really he calls it his football lab because he, uh, he's been working on, uh, on a project to, to study everything, uh, everything he's done since he's been a play caller going back all the way to his days with the Saints. Um, he's got, he's got a, there's pictures that I used in the article um, of his lab, uh, as he calls it, and, and he's got playbooks, he's got video equipment, and as he said, he's, uh, you know, it, it's all about getting back to uh, studying trends and, and, and looking at, at things so that when he gets his next opportunity, he's, he's fully prepared. So, uh, you know, I, I think the, the idea of him taking a year off, uh, is, you know, he laughed at it because he feels like he's, he's still working. Rob, at one point in the article, you brought up Matt LaFleur, his successor. Tell me what advice Coach had for Matt as he gets set to embark on the same journey that he did 13 years ago. Yeah, the interesting thing is he, he, he really doesn't know LaFleur. Doesn't, you know, they never worked together. Doesn't have a, a, you know, a, a 
relationship with him per se, but his advice was totally embrace Green Bay and, and the Packers. You know, the, it's a it's a it's a organization full of history. I think that's the interesting thing uh, that McCarthy. You know, he may he may be upset with with you know Mark Murphy and the way things were handled, but but he he is ultimately respectful of the history of the organization. He said, hey. Enjoy the honor of being a coach of the Green Bay Packers. Make the program your own. Uh, he said, hey, you were hired for a good reason, and don't get too far away from that. And, and you know, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a big of McCarthy to, you know, basically wish him the best of luck. Talk with Rob Domofsky, the Packers beat writer for ESPN.com. Just came out with an article about Mike McCarthy and what he's been doing since being fired in December. Rob, Green Bay's a small town. People talk, people recognize each other. Coach is still living there, and he was certainly dealing with the outside noise of criticism as he detailed in your article. Has he been dealing with it even more so since he's been fired? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's been hard on him because, like you said, it, you know, it, it is a city, a, a smaller city, and, you know, everything he does, everything he, he's up to is is well chronicled, as we've seen, you know, in the last few months. And uh, But this is where his family is, and, and he's even said, he says, Green Bay is always going to be my home. His wife is from here. Uh, two of his children were born here, so... Um, you know, I, I do think he is mindful of his place in the community. Um, it is unusual. I mean, look, it's, you know, he's going to run into, you know, to, to, coach, to new coaches. He's going to run into players uh, in town. It just it happens in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, I think that part is hard, um, but I think he's, you know, I think he's handled it well. Oh, Rob, uh, he said something really interesting one point during your Q&A where after winning the Super Bowl, he woke up to about 200 text yeah. messages. He got about 500 after he was fired. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's the compassion that people have and the respect that they have for him. Uh, you know, he, he always once told me, he said this was well, years ago, he told me this a couple times, he, he, he would say that, you know, he would always try to make sure he reached out to co- fellow coaches uh, after the losses, not just the wins. He says it's easy to text and call somebody after they win, but it's you know, it, it's it's much harder to do it after losses. And you know, he obviously experienced the, uh, you know, the ultimate loss. And 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 you know, I think he was humbled and uh, you know, gracious and 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 or uh, 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 you know, grateful, I should say, for the outpouring of support that he got from. You know, he mentioned it. It was coaches, players, you know, uh, politicians, people around town, media. I mean, I think he was grateful for it. Rob, at one point in the article, you asked Coach what he wanted the players that he mentored in Green Bay to take away from his time there. And the word that kept coming up was drive. What did he mean by that? Well, I think he wanted his, he wants his guys to remember him as somebody who gave, you know, gave everything that he had to, to try to help him get better, try to help him win. And, I mean, you know, that's ultimately, you know, I think all coaches would say that. Um, but, you know, he, 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 tried to make, um, he tried to make his program about, you know, family, hard work, and, you know, those being the two most important things. And, uh, you know, I think you never know how players are going to take it and never know how players are going to walk away. But, um, you know, I, I just think he tried to, that, that was his plan to try to instill family and, and, and hard work in, into their mindset. People have talked about the relationship between him and Aaron Rodgers. Did he open up about that at all? Well, yes and no. Um, you know, he, he obviously was 
you know, was careful to, uh, you know, sort of stay away from some of the, you know, uh, he said, she said things, or he said, he said things about, you know, the, his relationship with the quarterback. And, you know, he said, hey, uh, there's there's always challenges. Um, you know, I go back to an interview I did with Mike Holmgren last, last fall and, you know, asked him about what it's like to coach a great quarterback, and he basically said it's a blessing and a curse. You know, those are great players, but they're also great challenges because because they are so good. And, and I think there was some of that with, uh, you know, with him, he, with, with Rodgers. And he said the difficulty in coaching a Hall of Fame quarterback is keeping that connection. So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing, but it, but it is also, you know, every coach would love to have a quarterback with Rodgers' uh, abilities. Well, Rob, Mike McCarthy was not hired as anybody's head coach during the offseason. The only job that he wanted was the New York Jets position. Did he give any indication as to why that was? I think he thought there was a, there was a strong ownership um, there. I think he really connected with the owner. Um, you know, a young quarterback that he felt like he could mold. Um, great facilities. And, and I think, look, I mean, there's there's jobs that are are, you know, really good jobs or really the opportunity to be a really good job and, and you know and there's probably you know let, let's say there's maybe 10 or 12 of those of those uh type of jobs around the league and i think the two new york ones you know fit that if for no other reason than they're in new york you know those are high profile jobs i mean look he might end up taking a a job in a you know a place like you know jacksonville or tennessee and not that they would necessarily have openings but i'm just using those as Examples, but I think ultimately he'd rather have a job that's a little bit more high profile, uh, you know. Uh, so uh, I think the Jets fit that. I think he was interested in it, but you know, uh, we'll see. You know, you never know, Tanner, what those coaching uh, carousels will end up doing, and you know, we'll they'll probably be, you know, anywhere from four to eight more jobs open next year. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens and, and where he ends up. Talk with Rob Domofsky, covers the Packers for ESPN. Just came out with a piece on Mike McCarthy and his life after being fired in December. You can check that out at ESPN.com. Rob, based on how things ended in Green Bay, the offense that McCarthy took with the Packers' ownership, the criticism that he received for coaching a player like Aaron Rodgers, which do you think matters more to him when looking for head coaching jobs, the ownership or the roster? Yeah, I think it's the structure of the ownership and general manager and the connection that he would would have there. I think that's ultimately what he's looking for. And, you know, the Packers changed the structure, um, you know, more than a year ago. And Mark Murphy took over and basically became more involved in football. And, you know, like he said, anytime there's change, it's hard. And, and I think he's looking for, you know, the, the right fit in terms of the structure of, you know, being aligned with the coach and, or with the, uh, excuse me, the general manager and the owner. Look, you can find players. The rosters change quickly. Um, you know, I, obviously the quarterback's a big thing. I think he'd like to go somewhere where there's a either an established veteran quarterback or or a, or a high-profile young guy. But I think ultimately the structure of the organization is what will uh, what will be the, the most important thing. Rob Domofsky, Packers beat writer for ESPN.com, just came out with a profile on Mike McCarthy again. Be sure to check that out. Rob, as always, appreciate you being here and taking the time. Look forward to talking again soon. No problem. Thanks. Let's take a time out. When we come back, what is going on with Lenny Dykstra and Ron Darling? What do we know? What can we find out? 
You're going to find out next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Ron Darling has written a book called 108 Stitches, but there's one specific passage, his uh, recollection of what happened before Game 3 of the World Series at Fenway Park, where in his book he says his teammate Lenny Dykstra went on a, a vile, vicious, racial tirade against Dennis Oil Can Boyd, and Ron Darling joins us now. Kevin Mitchell said if he had heard it, he would have gotten in his chest. There's no chance you, you misremembered this in your mind. No chance that I misremembered it. I do say that if you read the entire chapter, it's really how ashamed about my complicitness in these kind of things that happened in those times where that seemed like the right way to compete. That is not how it's coming out, and um, I'm going to have to deal with it accordingly. I did not see the Michael K. show, but I, I know about the threat. So it's uncomfortable. Uh, no one wants to be threatened. Uh, I don't think at this point I would say anything to my doctor, not a thing. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops, John Michael Hoefling rejoins me. Here is your Sports Center update. Tyler Bertuzzi has now recorded at least three points in each of the last four games. Bertuzzi scored twice and added an assist to lead the Red Wings past Pittsburgh 4-1 last night. Russell Westbrook became just the second NBA player to record at least 20 points, 20 rebounds, and 20 assists in a single game. He finished with 21 assists. Russell dedicated his performance to rapper Nipsey Hussle, who was shot and killed on Sunday. And finally, a judge in Texas accidentally resigned his position after just three months. Judge Bill MacLeod posted online his future intentions to one day run for the Texas Supreme Court. According to Article 16 of the Texas Constitution, that is considered an announcement of candidacy, which automatically means an immediate resignation of whatever elected office the individual currently holds. That's one way to weed out your bad judges. I mean, to be a Supreme Court judge, you need to know your state's constitution. Uh, Sports Pen on ESPN-UP, John Michael Hoefling once again with me. Uh, Lenny Dykstra, Ron Darling, they have been feuding lately. They have been in the news. Uh, Ron Darling, currently a sportscaster, talked about former teammate Lenny Dykstra when they were both with the New York Mets, claimed that Dykstra was using racial slurs at one particular point back in the 80s. Several Mets teammates have come out and either defended Dykstra or defended Darling. Uh, some have said they didn't hear it, but they wouldn't be surprised. Knowing Lenny Dykstra, I wouldn't totally be surprised if it's true either. In fact, I'd kind of be surprised if it wasn't true. Lenny, if you if you ran into Ronnie right now, what'd you say, what would you say to him? I wouldn't say anything to him. I'd drop him like a redheaded <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well. I don't know. What are your thoughts on what's been going on? Here's the thing. Nobody's heard it, right? Right. Of all the players who have come out in support for Ron Darling or Lenny Dykstra, all of them have one constant in their stories. Nobody's ever heard it. So mm-hmm. it, either it was just a few, like, so either it was just Dykstra versus Darling, and Dykstra had this animosity toward Darling that he didn't have with anybody else, and that caused him to spew racial slurs just Darling and only Darling, because if anybody else had gotten the same sort of treatment from Dykstra, it would be everywhere right now. Mm -hmm. Everybody would be like, oh, well, obviously, multiple people got it. It's true. But the fact that some Mets have come out and been like, I've never heard it, I wouldn't expect it. Daryl Strawberry says he never never, uh, saw Dykstra as that sort of guy. It it makes me think that he possibly didn't do it. Mm -hmm. There's no way of proving who's right, who's wrong. You think, like, why would Darling come out and say this about Dykstra, right? But at the same time, 
How is how did nobody? How has nobody heard it? Like you can say, sure, I would I wouldn't be surprised if he did. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that this is an entire clubhouse. I've been around baseball my entire life. I know clubhouses are small, man. Mm-hmm. And you've got how many people? Fifty people in it at some some points. How does nobody hear this stuff? Right. Like, nobody's confirmed that this was said. If they're coming out and defending Ron Darling, they're saying, yeah, I didn't hear this, but I wouldn't be surprised. The fact that nobody's come out and seconded Darling, it raises a lot of red flags about this story. Yeah, but at the same, po- at the same time, you're like, what does Darling have to gain by right. putting Dykstra under the bus? Right, because he's got everything going for him. And at one point, Dykstra was in prison. He was living out of his car, living in hotel lobbies. I mean, Darling has nothing to gain by taking down a guy like Lenny Dykstra. I wouldn't be surprised if it were true, but it doesn't make sense the way that it's actually unfolding. You know, I don't know what Ron Darling has to gain, and I don't know why other teammates haven't confirmed this. Like, no one else has made these accusations. They're saying they wouldn't be surprised if it were true, but the fact that nobody's confirming it, that raises a lot of questions. Yeah, it's not even he said, she said at this point. It's, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he said, she said, Mm -hmm. right? Somebody had to have heard. Had to. And maybe um, they're just not coming forward? I, I don't know. Why wouldn't you come forward, though? Right. Like, um, the whole thing is, you don't want to be the first guy to do it. Because mm-hmm. then, you know, you could get ridiculed, you could get blamed, like, victim blamed or whatever. But, you're not the first guy anymore. Mm-hmm. So just coming out and being like, yeah, he was kind of a a, a meanie. He, he was a meanie. <laughs> This isn't the first time he's been accused of some racial slurs. This would be the first time that he's done it in the clubhouse that we know of that uh, has been directed toward a teammate. And just knowing how Lenny operates, uh, wouldn't totally be surprised. Especially in that day and age of baseball where team was everything. Like, just getting along with your team, working together. And this was the Miracle Mets season. Yeah, they were good. Yeah, 1986. That whole and wasn't that whole season around like a bunch of misfits coming together mm-hmm. and banding and doing something greater than themselves. And this and this was in the eighties when everybody was like, "You got to respect your team, got to respect your teammates." It it just adds more questions to it because yeah, Dykstra might not have been a good guy toward other teammate uh, toward other players on opposing teams, but during that season in particular. Just why would he go after one of his own guys? Well, I tell you what, while we're on the subject of baseball, and because I know it's a subject that you always enjoy talking about, Bryce Harper returned to D.C. last night, and to a myriad of boos, they turned into cheers after he was fanned in his first Mm at-bat, and of course he later would launch the 458-foot moonshot. Uh, Maybe the biggest story from that game, though, that at least the biggest story people aren't talking about enough, Trey Turner suffers a broken finger. That's yeah. a big loss for the Nats. That, that's go. huge. And you wake up to Twitter and you talk about how Trey Turner picked in the first round of every fantasy baseball draft, arguably the best shortstop in all of baseball, I would say. Definitely top two in the National League. Maybe Corey Seager, but that's the only person I could possibly think of, right? And, or Trevor Story, maybe. I don't know. But He's up there. Yeah. But Trey and then you wake up, and all on Twitter is just, oh, Bryce Harper, one, one amazing <laughs> thing, right? I, I, you know what I will say? I don't like Bryce Harper as a player, mm-hmm. but he, that was 
it was a great game to watch. Mm-hmm. Great, great things to watch. The bat flip was great. Three and a half loops around before it hit the ground. His entrance to to the outfield coming out during mm-hmm. the first inning, where he just like bows to the that, that was great. I, I love that stuff. It, Mo- it put it on a show. It was drama. Yeah. Moving back to Trey Turner though. <laughs> um, that's yeah. I mean, he was out. Think about last year, where the Nationals had all these expectations. Everybody thought they were going to win the division, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody thought they were the best team in the National League, besides maybe the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And they go eighty-two and eighty. Yep. A lot of that's because they didn't have Trey Turner, and they had a little more. They had a couple more injuries than that. Ryan Zimmerman had a down year. I expect him to bounce back. Anthony Rendon was out for a little bit. Victor Robles wasn't there yet. Juan Soto wasn't there yet. But Trey Turner is the setup guy, mm-hmm. and I think the setup guy has become like an underrated position. Especially a setup guy that can hit home runs. Right. Because think about how valuable Jose Altuve is to the Astros. Mm-hmm. Trey Turner is the NL equivalent of Jose Altuve. He's I like fa- that. Yeah. He's faster with he's he exchanges a little bit less power, I'd say, for more speed. Mm-hmm. And plays a mean shortstop. Mm. Captain of the infield. And now he's and now he's out. Who are they going to replace him with? Exactly. I mean, and the worst part I think about this is how it happened. It happened on a bunt attempt. I know bunts are risky for fingers and what have you, but come on, man. It happens. I know, I know. But Rajon Rondo broke his hand in the bathtub. Like it's it's the inner Kent Murphy in me. You ever watch those videos? Yeah, I love, Kent, I love Murphy. Kent Murphy. Uh, you, you don't bunt. Just don't bunt. <laughs> I, I think it's a big part of strategy, though. I I'm not as opposed to bunting as him. I just like the jokes. Mm-hmm. But Trey Turner breaking his finger on a bunt for whatever reason I, that just doesn't sit well with me. What don't you like about it? Like having such a great start to the season like he did. We knew he was going to have a great year. And then it's just a whimper. Like the bat's taken out of your hands, presumably, if he's out long-term. I mean, if you're going to get hurt and be out long-term, get hurt, slide into home plate, and collide with the catcher or something like that. Uh, like, I don't know. Every, not everybody can have a cool... Like, it's the same I thing. Know. Everybody wants to be like, oh, I want to have the coolest... Like death, I want to like get crushed. Like like what's his name in dodgeball? Who who gets crushed by the casino? Patches O'Hulahan. Yeah, Patches O'Hulahan. Everybody's like, that's the coolest death I've ever seen. I right? don't think that way. That that was the whole joke of the movie. Was like, it was, it, you know, no, no, no. I know that, but I don't. I don't picture my death being something cool. You've never thought about no, that? No, I want to go like peacefully in my sleep or something oh, like I thought that. About that. Have you really? I want to get like eaten by a shark or something. Man. Uh, That'd be kind of cool. Probably wouldn't happen up here. <laughs> Not this time of the year either. Uh, you might, if you go home sometime and you're surfing. It's the San Jose Sharks for a reason, man. So do you hope that you get attacked by a shark? Like if you well, go out surfing, you're like, you know, I, I hope I live. It'll be a good day. But, you know, if I get bitten by a shark, that's cool I want to have a, like, I don't know. I've always been fascinated with sharks. It was like my, like, you know, when, when you're a kid, you always have like that one obsession. Mm-hmm. And for some kids, it's like dinosaurs for... And I don't know what what another thing is, but for me, it was always sharks. Always sharks. Yeah. How about it? Yeah. Okay. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, I've always wanted to go cage diving. Never free diving. I'd go free diving with, like, whale sharks or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, that'd just be so cool. You're a risk taker. I would never go skydiving. Never go sky. Okay. If, why would you do cage diving but not skydiving? Because skydiving, I, I'm terrified of heights. Because like, sh- sharks just don't terrify me. Because getting ripped up by a shark is cooler than going splat. That's the way you want. Yeah. <laughs> because if you're going, if you're getting, 
eating by a shark, at least you're fighting back. You're trying to survive. But if <laughs> you go splat, you know, you know you're going splat 30 <laughs> seconds before. John Michael Hoefling's in the studio with us. We owe you our last time out. When we come back, college hoops coaches are on the move, and Russell Wilson wants to get paid. Next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to Enter Hoops. John Michael Hoefling with you just about down to the 5 o'clock hour here on ESPN-UP. Well, you talked about waking up to news on your phone earlier, Michael, and I did the same thing, except I couldn't believe what I was seeing in the college basketball scene. College basketball coaches in full frenzy, on the move, jumping ship, and landing elsewhere. Buzz Williams, with maybe the worst-kept secret in all of college basketball, announces today that he is taking the job at Texas A&M. He's from that area. He went to a school in the Texas A&M system, Texas A&M Kingsville, but now he's going to be the Aggies' head coach. It, to me, that's about the only place that I would have left Virginia Tech for if I were him, because he's got a good thing going there. He did have a good thing going there. Virginia Tech, yeah, they yeah. were the they were the one team that I thought in the East bracket that had a chance to beat Duke. But I mean, mm. I, Michigan State they are they are proving me they are making me look dumb all across everything I do. But yeah, A and M, it's a weird move, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like a. You, you go down the stairs, in a sense. Talent-wise, yeah, like where your program is. But he brought Marquette up, and he brought Virginia Tech up, and feels yeah. like he can do the same thing closer to home. I don't know, because I feel like even before Buzz Williams got to Virginia Tech and Marquette, they were still like storied schools from a, a time long, long ago. They you had know? history, yeah. But Texas A&M, I don't remember the last time they were even relevant in terms of basketball. The last time we were talking about them was Johnny Manziel, like the, there's not much that has gone on with that school in terms of athletics. It should be easier to win in the SEC. Should be. It should be. But here's the thing. The goal is always to get to the tournament, right? Mm-hmm. How many teams from the SEC make it to the tournament every year? That They had, let's see, Kentucky, Auburn, Florida made it this year. Uh, did Ole Miss? Yeah, Ole Miss. They was got an, beat in the first team. round. Mississippi State was a five. So they're so, okay. on the rise in basketball. Okay. I've just never. They, obviously, nobody thinks of them as a basketball. Conference. No, no, they're not a basketball power by any yeah. sense. That, that's more than I expected, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ACC is widely considered to be the basketball conference, right? And no matter how poorly you do against other teams in your conference, it's going to be like, oh, you came fourth and fourth in the ACC. Oh, you're in. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you're going to be a three seed or a four seed because the ACC is so good, right? So it's going to be a little bit more difficult to get into the tournament, I, I would say. I wouldn't be surprised if for the first two or three years he doesn't at all mm. with Texas A&M. Because I had Will Tiemann on here yesterday, the radio voice of Michigan State men's basketball, and he was talking about how the ACC is viewed as compared to other conferences where the ACC gets three of the four number one seeds, but the Big Ten champion, both in the regular season and the tournament, gets a two. You know, people have that kind of respect for the ACC. So you're bringing up a really good point in the sense that if he doesn't win the SEC, you know, if he gets fourth or fifth in that conference, he's not going to get the same respect come tournament time that you would for getting fourth or fifth in the ACC. No, yeah, it's a big thing. You need to... Not you need to destroy your conference in the SEC to have any sort of chance of getting a reasonable seed in the tournament. Auburn is, was the hottest team coming into this tournament, and I thought they didn't have a chance mm-hmm. because they had to face Kansas, North Carolina, and Kentucky. 
and they are blowing them all away, mm-hmm. right? And still, I guarantee next year, I, I think Auburn is the best chance to win this whole thing right now because Do you? Of just because it's just how hot they're playing. Seventeen mm-hmm. point win over um, North Carolina, mm-hmm. absolutely dominated Kentucky. Like uh, without their game. best player, yeah, without yeah, exactly without their best player. It's crazy to think, and I guarantee you, at this time next or at the beginning of the season next year, everybody's still going to say SEC is trash. <laughs> People don't consider it a basketball conference, and they need something like a national champion, somebody who's not named Kentucky to be a they, national no, champion. They need a Zion Williamson to be considered not. They need something. They need they need a Zion Williamson for people to be like, oh, they're they're also pretty good at basketball. Real quickly, uh, while we're on the SEC and on the topic of basketball, John Calipari gets a lifetime deal, ten years. And 25 to be Coach Hermitus after that. So basically as long as he's breathing and above ground, <laughs> he will be the head coach of the Kentucky Wildcats. Is this a good move? No. Calipari has only taken the Kentucky Wildcats so far. Mm-hmm. And there, there are some schools I know that if he went on the market after this year, which some people thought he might have, there were some schools that I know that weren't even going to offer him $6 million. Mm. And now... So rather than, you know, test that because maybe they could have gotten a much better deal on the coach that could have taken them to that next level rather than Calipari who seemingly plateaued, they're giving, they're like, hey, so we know you haven't done what we wanted. We, you haven't taken us to the promised land like you promised. Just be our coach for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. To me, he's always had the first or second best recruiting class in the country. You look back at Kentucky and the recruiting rankings, he's always number one or number two as their head coach. But that's the thing, is they only have one national title during that time. That number should be up. That's my biggest complaint with this deal. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Like When you have such great talent, it's like with the Warriors. I'm going to talk about how the Warriors sort of built their dynasty. I'm very familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Mark Jackson was a great coach for the Warriors. Steph Curry was spectacular under Mark Jackson, and everything was looking up. And then the Warriors fire Mark Jackson because, guess what? He had one of the best teams that still ended up as the six. He lost in the first round of the Clippers. Mm -hmm. They bring in Steve Kerr. Boom, two-time MVP, championship, 73-9. and And all that stuff happens. You need, at some point, you need to cut your losses and sort of realize that you're only going to make it so far with the guy you have. And if you're keeping him only for his ability to recruit, that's a poor strategy. I mean, I'd rather have a good coach than a good recruiter. I don't disagree with keeping Calipari there, but in sports, I don't think lifetime contracts are ever a good idea. Like, at some point, you lose your luster and you lose your ability to dominate like you did back in your prime. Calipari's a great coach. I mean, he's a blue-chip, upper-echelon college basketball coach. I agree with keeping him there, even if it's a long-term deal. But at some point, everyone's going to lose their luster. you got to cut ties. That's why I don't like about this deal. I'd be okay with a long-term deal. Not this long. If... He's been there long enough, I feel like. Really? You think it's time to move on? I, th- I think it was. Oh, that's, that's a hot take. I think it was. Like, he was making way too much, in my opinion, for somebody who couldn't... He, the, the fact that he didn't win a championship with that Anthony Davis Kentucky team is bonkers. Yeah. It's insane. It, anybody... Think about how dominant people thought Duke was this year. They lost five games this year. Mm-hmm. And people thought this is the best team we've seen in some time. That Kentucky team was undefeated. That team back in 2015 with Willie Cauley-Stein? The guy has a neck tattoo. Why would you want to guard him when you got your whole life to live? There were so, like, so many good things about that team. So many, like, 
Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett hold nothing to that team, in my opinion. Like, Zion, sure, he might have been the best player on that team, but that team as a whole was miles better than this Duke team. And people think it's insane that Duke went out this early. Mm -hmm. Kentucky went undefeated. Calipari had the best team I have ever seen in my lifetime. Didn't even make the championship that year. Exactly. Well, I tell you what, uh, Calipari does get a new contract, like it or not. Russell Wilson wants one. Russell Wilson has set a deadline for the Seattle Seahawks to put a new contract in place for him. April 15th, you think that's any coincidence that his deadline is tax day to get the Seahawks (laughs) to put a new contract on the table for him. He wants to be the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. He's currently making $17 million. He wants $34 million. One million more than Aaron Rodgers would get per year. I think I, Russell Wilson deserves it. I think you got to do it. I mean, quarterbacks like him don't come around too often. I don't know that he deserves to get paid more than Aaron Rodgers, but in this circumstance, I think you got to pay him. you got to keep him around. You know what? This is going to be a hot take on Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. But Aaron Rodgers has become sort of like a LeBron James Mm. of the NFL in that he's undoubtedly the greatest, right? Mm -hmm. The greatest just pure talent we see in the NFL right now. You can argue Tom Brady, but straight up, if if they were to do like a one-on-one style basketball matchup, Aaron Rodgers would take it. He's faster. He's more... Accurate, like Tom Brady, maybe does has better pre-snap reads, but that that's it for the most part I mm-hmm. can think of. Russell Wilson, or sorry, excuse me, Aaron Rodgers, also has become a bit of like his own team's GM, mm-hmm. where if he wants something, it feels like the Packers are sort of obliged to get it for him. Mm-hmm. So he's like LeBron James in that sense, where he's become so big, so great, so legacy-ish, he's built this legacy with the Packers, that they have to do whatever they can to sort of appease him. And Russell Wilson is sort of becoming the same way because look at how bad that offensive line is. Yeah. Look at how bad those receivers are. Mm-hmm. And look yet, at they what still Jimmy, made the playoffs. Look at what Jimmy Graham did before he got to Seattle. Mm-hmm. And Russell Wilson made them all spectacular. Right. Led the NFL in touchdowns with a receiving core that was centered around Tyler Lockett and Paul Richardson. <laughs> I think you got to pay him. You do. I mean, this situation, you've got to keep a guy like him around. He said he's not going to hold out if they don't have a deal in place for him in a little less than two weeks. Mm-hmm. But he is entering the last year of his contract. and You don't want a guy like him to walk because he has started every game for Seattle since 2012. I'm looking at the list of their old quarterbacks. Do you really want to take the risk of letting him walk or making him unhappy and going back to the days where Tavares Jackson, mm-hmm. Charlie Whitehurst, Seneca Wallace were your starting quarterbacks? No, you don't at all. Think about what their record was before he got into the league, too. Mm-hmm. Pete Carroll was almost out the door. Yeah. For the two, I believe it was two years before Russell Wilson got there. Mm-hmm. Under 500, not performing at the standards that they were hoping. And then it, it took Russell Wilson and Jim Harbaugh to sort of light the fire underneath him. And now Pete Carroll's considered one of the best coaches in the NFL. I think it's all just because of Russell Wilson, mm-hmm. in a sense. Like, he's a great defensive mind, but I don't think he knows how to run an offense. He's had to rely on a guy like Wilson, who's the be- the most agile quarterback I've ever seen. Somebody who can survive with, who's who's done so great. Other than Tom Brady, I don't know if there's a quarterback in the league who's succeeded more with less talent. I agree with you and disagree with you. 
I, I don't agree that Russell Wilson has been the only cause of Pete Carroll's success. He's a big part of it, no doubt. But quarterbacks like Charlie Whitehurst and Tavares mm. Jackson, you're just not going to win with them. Um, I, I do agree with you uh, in the sense that you said that you like his defensive mind, Pete Carroll's defensive mind, but you're concerned about the way he runs an offense. I am too. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that there could be a better offensive mind as a head coach that could get a lot more out of Russell Wilson. And I think that we saw that maybe in the last play of Super Bowl 51. Uh, yeah. <laughs> would lead a lot of people yeah. to think that way. Well, the whole rumor is there's, there's a bunch of rumors that he's headed to New York, mm. which is a huge thing because his, his wife's career would be expanded in New York. And I know that he's. You mean Russ? Guy. Yeah, Russ's wife. Russ heading to New York. Yeah, mm. that's a, that's a, that's that's the whole thing to right take now. Over and I was Giants' job. I love Pat Shermer as mm. an offensive coach. If you want somebody that's going to take a quarterback and put it to their best, it's Pat Shermer. I'd love look, to see look, look Russ. Look what he did with Case Keenum in the Vikings. Right. Yeah, and you know, let's let's uh, you know avoid last season with the Giants. Right. But Russell Wilson with an offensive line that has you know some good pieces. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he doesn't have Odell Beckham anymore, but he he doesn't have to deal with Chris Carson anymore. You have Saquon Barkley. Mm-hmm. You don't have to deal with Luke Wilson anymore. You have Evan Ingram. Evan Ingram, yeah. You don't have to deal with Tyler Lockett anymore, who I think is an underrated receiver. Or and he's Doug, not number one. Yeah, Doug Baldwin is good, but he's inconsistent. Mm-hmm. You have a guy like Sterling Shepard, who I think is ready to take on that number one role. Mm-hmm. There are so many good tools. Available. It's a weaker division, in my opinion, because I think the Rams and the 49ers are going to destroy the, the NFC West for years to come, mm. and and maybe even the Cardinals if they and like if they figure out their quarterback situation. If everything goes according to plan, <laughs> maybe the Cardinals could be a contender. They 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 need a lot of pieces, but you know when a team is so down at this point, you know there's a great quote by the Trailblazers GM mm. where they say it's better to be down in the dumps for years than to be constantly riding the train of mediocrity. Mm. Because when you're down in those dumps, you can get the best players. You have some leverage to trade away your pieces and get great pieces for the future. But if you're on the train of mediocrity, every time you're like, I'm just one or two pieces away. Oh, I got to do this. And it always falls flat. So I feel like the Seahawks are sort of that team right now where it's, are they good enough to continually go back to the playoffs every single year? Are they good enough to compete with the Rams in that division and that incredible offensive mind in Sean McVay? And I don't think they are. I think they're just getting older. But the fact that they made the playoffs last year is just going to push them and be like, let's go for two or three last rides with the boys. Let's keep that Legion of Boom dream running, even though every piece is gone now. Mm-hmm. As long as they have Russ, they're going to have a chance to compete for the postseason every single year. And I think that's going to be their downfall. You think? Yeah. The the fact that they are going to be so close to the postseason every single year is going to be that little bit that's like, all right, well, we're so close. Let's trade away our first-round picks and get this one really mm-hmm. good player. And it's not going to work out, yeah. in my opinion. Last thing before we sign off. I don't believe this about Russ because I like him. I like, I, I'm like i not a huge celebrity couple fan, but I like him and Ciara together. I think they're good people. I think you know they have good values, what have you. Is Russ one of those guys that is doing this because he needs to feel like he makes more money than his wife? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. Take pride in your own work. Right, right. right. I, I don't know. 
John Michael Hoefling's in the studio with us. Appreciate you as always, man. Looking yeah, forward thanks, to next man. week. That's it for us here in the Sports Pen. Thanks again for tuning in. Back on tomorrow on ESPN, UPWZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.